morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, December 19th, we are studying the hymn Creator of the Stars of Night. It's hymn number 351 in Lutheran Service Book. This Advent hymn speaks of Christ as the light of the world who has brought healing in his first coming, and he will come again as judge and king. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be back with you. As we get started today, Pastor Heidi, let's talk just a little bit about the season of Advent. We're nearing the end of the season now. What should we know about the season of Advent, its importance in the church year, and in the life of the Christian? Well, the season of Advent is a time of preparation, a time which looks forward to uh, Christmas, of course, but it's also a time which also looks at all of the comings of Christ, whether it be the first coming, the second coming, or his present coming. And, uh, it's not, you know, we don't want to think of it just as a countdown to Christmas. You know, it has its own distinct uh, purpose, its own distinct reason. And uh, it's, it's frankly, a uh, favorite season of mine, uh, just because, I don't know, it's, it's a good time of year. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, why? Tell me, tell me why it's a good time of year. Because you, I mean, Every I'm I'm sure every place has its ups and downs, but you live in North Dakota. It snows. It's dark there in December. So what makes Advent? A, and I'm sure it's a lovely place, Pastor Heidi. But what makes what makes Advent a, a great time of year, even when it's snowing and dark outside? I mean, because if we're looking forward to the hope that is in Christ, you know that that is something that no amount of snow is going to take away. I suppose. Um, but it's also something that gives us hope in the midst of a world which, you know, doesn't seem to have much hope. Uh, you know, when we're looking forward to the, the coming of Christ again, for example, when he will give us uh, the justice that we need, you know, that is something where we can certainly rejoice in. Uh, or if we want to, you know, find hope just in the, the first coming of Christ, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a season of great hope. And I think that's that's what makes it such a favorite of mine, you know, looking forward to Christ you know, in all of his works, uh, which which he has done for us or will do for us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the word hope is a fantastic word for the season of Advent. And I, I, I'm with you on, on what you're saying. In a, in a t and especially in that context of, you know, it is a darker time of year. If you live farther north, it, there is some snow. There are there are a lot of things that are going on that at that time of year, even with all of the holidays around, it, it may seem like things are are darker, not only literally, but also figuratively, and that, that there is less hope. And in the midst of, of that very time of year, we get these beautiful hymns and beautiful readings from the scriptures that proclaim the hope that is ours in Christ. 
because of his first coming and the way that he still comes to us and the way that we know he will come again on the last day. So it is it is very much a hopeful season in the midst of what what otherwise might be a, a less than hopeful time of year. And so I, I, I'm with you. I, I think it's a great season of the church year. Um, it's, it's always been one of one of my favorites as well. What's your what's your favorite Advent hymn then, Pastor Heidi? Um, there's a lot of good ones. Um, there but, you go. That's the good answer. <laughs> but I think probably the my f- most favorite would probably have to be uh, "Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending." Oh, tell me why. Tell me why. Uh, it's just a beautiful hymn, and it's it's one of these things that talks about you know, well, specifically the second coming of Christ and uh, the the majesty which He will have when He comes, and also the the justice that he will bring, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, and especially because I don't, this is, this is a personal thing for me, but the, the hymns that aren't in translation, uh, you know, are, are in our native English, they tend to, I don't know, they have a, a much more, I don't want to, I don't want to say this. You don't lose anything in translation. Let's put it that way. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that that is by a, an English hymn writer, there is something to the the poetry that is it's, you know, that's exactly the way that he wanted it to be. Whereas sometimes there is some, some things that get lost in translation as, as good as our translators are. Sometimes it's, it's harder to convey it. And so with an English hymn, yeah, that's, that's a good point. So that is, that is a good hymn. 336, low he comes with clouds ascending. So many good Advent hymns in our hymnal and in hymnals past. Sometimes we've, we've pulled out stanzas from hymnals past that got left out in, in this one. I don't know, though, Pastor Heidi, that this hymn has been in a previous hymnal. If it has, I don't think I've ever sung it in, in worship, to be honest with you. I don't, have, you, have you ever sung the hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night, before? Um, very rarely. Uh, it's, it's kind of one of the un, unfortunate hymns in the hymnal where it has its own tune, um, and because of that, and because it's new, I think it's just probably not the most popular of hymns. That doesn't mean that it's bad or anything. It's just, it kind of falls by the wayside because it is unfamiliar, uh, for that reason. And that's true. Uh, here especially, as well, so. especially at a time of year like Advent and then going into the season of Christmas, where there are so many hymns that have been used for so long that people love so much to, to put a newer hymn into that repertoire can be very difficult because everyone wants to sing the ones that they they know and they love and there's nothing wrong with that. This what's what's interesting about that though is this as it stands as a hymn itself is not actually that new even if it's not one that we are as accustomed to singing. I know there's uh, quite a bit of of history here but it much of it isn't known. Can you just kind of give us a, a brief brief glimpse into where this hymn comes from? Yeah, this this hymn is derived from an old Latin hymn um, that that goes, you know, basically by created as stars and night. But unfortunately, we don't know who wrote it, and it comes from you know somewhere before the the tenth century, so you know somewhere nine hundred or before. So you know it's a fairly old hymn. Um, but it's it's one of those things where there's also a bunch of different versions that existed of it, and it underwent a major revision in the 17th century that changed it completely. Um, but then also it was trans, the old version was translated in the 19th century by John Mason Neal, uh, who also translated a bunch of other Latin hymns. And so that's, that's kind of why we have it in English today is mostly because of Neal and his work. So, I mean, it's, 
There's not a lot there. I mean, but we can say that the hymn has existed in one form or another for more than a thousand years. So in terms of the text, it is a fairly old hymn, even if it's not one that is that is as well known to us. So this is hymn number 351 in Lutheran service book, Creator of the Stars of Night. Here is stanza one. Creator of the stars of night, thy people's everlasting light. O Christ, Redeemer, save us all and hear thy servants when they call. That's stanza one of the hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night. Now let's just talk about the title of the hymn, the first line, Pastor Heidi, Creator of the Stars of Night. Who are we talking about? What's being emphasized here? Well, I mean, obviously we're talking about the Creator, but you can either see this as uh, talking to the Father you know, because we usually refer to the Father as the Creator, as the one who uh, created all things, created heaven and earth. Although I suppose you could uh, also take this as referring to Christ, uh, because you know, especially in the second half of the, of the verse, it specifically refers to Christ. Uh, because we do also refer to Christ as you know, Creator in His own right. You know, like John chapter one, you know, without Him was not anything made. So I, I, either way, whether we're talking to the Father or to the Son, we are referring to God in His creative, um, His creative activity as the one who brought all things into existence. Right? Hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I was the passage from John one came to my mind too when you were speaking about you know is are we referring to the Father the Son well they they both are very active in creation of course as is the the Holy Spirit right? I mean the the Triune God is the Creator and so we we acknowledge God as Creator here from the opening of this hymn why is that an important acknowledgement I mean in general but especially during the season of Advent to to pray to sing to our Creator well I mean being our Creator He is the one you know who has brought us into existence, but it also means that he is the one who has a claim on us simply because he is our creator. And so when we call on him who has created us and, and say that we are thy people, you know, we're not just referring to the fact that we have been redeemed, although that's certainly important, but you know, we are God's people in a sense because he is the one who made us in the first place. And so, uh, I think it would be a way of of also referring to his power, to his, um, you know, he's, if anyone's going to save us, it's him. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, I appreciate the way you, you put that, the the universality of that word, the creator of the stars of night is, is how the line continues. But that is a very, I mean, that's a all-encompassing word to speak of God. What did he create? All things, as you said from, from John 1, if whatever's made... The word had a role in it. God did that. And, and that's going to come in later in this hymn when we think about the Lord as king and judge in, in the later stanzas of this hymn. So he is the creator. And in fact, he's the creator of all people. We sometimes talk about this when we think about the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which is a, a uniquely Christian way of, of praying. And yet at the same time, in, in a certain sense, all people could think of God as their father because he's the one that gave life to them, even if they of course, if they don't believe in him, they wouldn't call him father. But this this word creator, this acknowledges that God is over all. He has created all things. 
and particularly for this hymn, Stars of Night. Now, why why might that be the, the way that we sing in this hymn, that he's the creator of the stars of night, beyond just the rhyme? Yeah, no, I mean, that's 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 an interesting question, because what, is, what do the stars have to do with the rest of the hymn, in a sense? And I think, I really do think that it's referring to uh, the power which God has here, but it also is partly probably because um, this hymn and its origin uh, was typically associated with uh, nighttime offices of the church. You know, when, when people would be praying during the night or in the evening, the stars would be coming out, and therefore it was only natural for them to refer to the stars, which they were starting to see in the hymn itself. Sure. Yeah, this this definitely has the flavor of an evening hymn. It was used that way initially. And and I, I think too, just the creator of the stars of night, it, it also goes in with the the light imagery that is often associated with the season of Advent and then into Christmas as well. And even in this very first stanza, so creator of the stars of night, thy people's everlasting light. There's a an opportunity to reflect as as I'm standing outside and I, I see the stars coming out and I'm in a worship service. Well, where is where does my light actually come from? Or who created that light? Who is my ultimate light? It is my Lord, my creator. It is is Jesus, right? He calls himself the light of the world. So I, I think, you know, there's a there's a parallel there between the the first line and the second. The, the not just in the rhyme, of course, which again is Latin. Does does Latin poetry rhyme, Pastor Heidi? I don't know. And not not really. Latin poetry is based more on uh, syllables and accents, okay. rather than gotcha. rhyming. So okay, yeah. So well, in this case, though, the the stars of night, I think, does match up with the thought that God is the everlasting light. If I can, if I can marvel at the stars in the sky and their light, how much more then do I marvel at their Creator? who is in fact our everlasting light. Talk talk more about that, the way the hymn progresses into acknowledging God as our everlasting light. Well, it becomes a very clear reference, not only to I am the light of the world, where Jesus says in John, but also what James says, you know, that he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or change. And I think that, you know, thinking of God as the light, the light which comes down from above, uh, helps us also to think, you know, as we're looking at the stars, which, you know, their light is coming down from above in a sense, you know, he is the one from whom they derive their light. You know, it's again, a reference to his power again, uh, and also kind of progressing it in the sense of, you know, the one who will bring us light, not only physical light, but also spiritual light, which is how the remainder of the, uh, stanza will conclude. Right. Mm, uh, with, right. And with the the con or the the move from the stars then to the God as the everlasting light, you think about the stars of night. Those those lights come out at night, but then when the sun shines in the day, the stars are gone. And and we know that, you know, even even stars fall, so that 
but God does not, right? He is the everlasting light for his people, whereas these these lights come and go, not the Lord. His light is an everlasting light that he shines on his people. And and that light then we see, especially through Christ, and as you said, there is a, a you know, then the, the stanza moves us to Christ to pray to him. And, and if we have been thinking especially about the power of God in creation, even more powerful than, than the stars in the sky, then we see how he makes use of that power. Or when we call upon him, how do we want him to make use of that power? It is through redemption, through salvation, to listening to our prayer. Take us into those, those last two lines of this first stanza. I mean, it's, it's a pretty straightforward end to the stanza. You know, if, if the first part begins kind of poetically, uh, I think the second half is a very much more straightforward uh, because, you know, as it says, Christ is the one who redeems us. Is, and we call on him to save us and to hear us as he has promised to do. So the, the, the whole first stanza then uh, takes on the character of a kind of invocation, you know, to, to call on God as the creator, as the redeemer, as the one who will save us, and asking him to listen to our cry, uh, which we will see expounded in the, in the stanzas to come. Just briefly before we leave this first stanza, talk about the title for Christ Redeemer. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about creator at the beginning. We know what that means. And Redeemer is certainly a word that we use often, but perhaps there's some nuance or some particular facets to that term that we don't always think about. What does it mean that Christ is our Redeemer? Well, that he is the one who has bought us back. He is the one who paid for our salvation uh, with his own blood so that we are now his people because he has redeemed us. And so the, the emphasis on redeemer is the emphasis on what Christ has done, the specifically the price which he has paid in order to make us his own. And so I think, you know, in, in, especially in the context of this hymn, yes, he is the creator. He is the one who has made all things, but he's also done the greater thing in redeeming his fallen creation and buying us so that we would belong to him once more. Hmm. All right, let's move now into stanza two. Thou, grieving that the ancient curse should doom to death a universe, hast found the healing full of grace to cure and save our ruined race. That is stanza two of the hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night. Now, Pastor Heidi, this is one of those places where we have to slow down and take a look at the poetry to make sure we understand what we're singing and what this stanza means. And I, I know as I was looking at this stanza, this was one that I had to, to read through a couple times. And you and I even visited a little bit about this before we, we started recording this morning as to in at the very beginning, who is thou? Who's the who's the you that we're we're talking about in stanza two? And I, and I really do think that it's either referring to the father, um, or to the son again. So I, I, I do think that it still refers to God, uh, but we just, you have to kind of break down the, the, the stanza to be able to see that just a little bit right, more so, clearly. Yeah. So help us, help us to do that. So we're going to, we're going to say, and I, I think you're right that into the thou, we're going to talk still to God, help us to, to say, what are we saying about or to God in this stanza? Well, Broadly speaking, and we can look at specifics in just a minute, but broadly speaking, we are calling on God who, uh, lamenting 
the curse, in other words, lamenting that we fell into sin, uh, has found for us the remedy. In other words, that he has appointed for us his son, full of grace, in order to, to cure us and to save us. So I, I do think that this, what this is looking at in the broadest sense is the desire of the Father, specifically, to save us by giving us Jesus. And it's just speaking of that, uh, that decree, that appointment, whatever language you want to use, in very poetic terms. That would be my So, idea. yeah. Okay, yeah, and I think I think I think that's right. So, yeah, what we're saying here in stanza two is is you, O Lord, because you had you were grieved that your creation, your entire universe, was doomed to death because of the curse. You did something about it. You sent healing, full of grace, to save us, to cure us. That's that's basically the thought of this stanza. God did not; he was not content to let his creation die forever in under sin. And so he did something about it. He sent us a, a cure, a healing. That's that's the basic thought of stanza two. I think that's that's the way we should understand it. So I, I think you're right. So thou, we're talking to to God, Father or Son. I, I think you could make a case for either within the context of the hymn, and certainly scripturally, this is true of both. So let's talk a little bit about this. Now, God's grief over the ancient curse, dooming to death a universe. Talk about that aspect of the hymn. God's grief, or as I think you said, lament over the, the state of his fallen creation. Yeah. And of course, somebody might ask, well, wasn't he the one that cursed it? And of course, yes, that's true. And justly so. I mean, Adam and Eve falling into sin is something that deserved the curse. We don't want to think that this was God saying, oh, this is so bad that, you know, that my, I created a world that was imperfect and I'm trying to do something about it. No, that's, that's not what happened. You know, God did lay down the curse but at the same time, in eternity, even before he created the world, and, you know, let us, let us pay attention here because we are talking about things that, you know, we, we should be careful how we tread. Uh, right. But before he created the world, he also, appoint, he also knew that we would fall into sin. And as a result, lamenting that curse, you know, not wanting to leave us in sin, provided for us a savior, which is Christ the Lord. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, so, so we're talking about, I mean, yeah, and, and we, we should be careful about the, the way that we speak as, as we start to, to delve into some things. But, uh, you know, you're speaking with the words of Scripture that, that God, before the foundation of the world, I mean, we're talking about, like, this is what, Ephesians chapter 1 kind of language, mm -hmm. that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ, right? So he, he, he knew what he was going to do and chose to do that for us, for his people. This is, this is good news. But in particularly, the, the desire of God comes through that he, he wanted to save us. I mean, so I don't, maybe you had some other scripture passages in mind, but passages like from Ezekiel, where the Lord says he doesn't desire the death of the sinner, but that the sinner would turn from his wickedness and live. And in first Timothy two, that God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth that, that we know that it is not the desire of God to send people to hell. He wants to save them. And I mean, that's, that's at least I think a big part of what's happening in the first two lines of the stanza is that God's desire is to save. And so when he sees his, his creation headed toward death, that 
that grieves him. He doesn't he doesn't desire that. And so he's going to do something about it. Yeah. I mean, it's it really just it comes down to, again, that you referred to Ephesians with, you know, election and that sort of thing. You might even think of first Peter and what it has to say about election. Uh, the, the point being that, you know, God does not want uh, the, the curse to remain. It's not like God is begrudgingly giving us Jesus because, oh, I suppose I better do something. No, he, he wants to save us. He desires to save us. You might even think of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem and saying, you know, how often, you know, I sent prophets to you and you would not listen. And that causes Jesus to weep. You know, that, that is something that God wants to do. He wants to save. And uh, even though he justly condemned us because of our sin, now he also wants to redeem us so that we would belong to him once more. Mm. Yeah, the the example of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, I think, is a fa- a fantastic example of where you see the the grief of God over those who would who would choose death over life. I mean, that's that's a fantastic example. And when you think about you know what what God could be grieved over instead, and and in fact, I mean, at least in in my mind, I, I think a little bit about what happens with the flood and and the way that that God you know is is grieved or he laments over the way that his his creation has just fallen so far such that he sends a flood to wipe out all except Noah and his family and those on the ark i mean the fact that god doesn't do that more often that that's a sign that his grief is really over the fact that that we we die at all and his his desire is to save why doesn't god do that all the time that's a sign that his of of what the stanza is talking about yeah and his a sign of his great patience yes Yes, that's that's Peter also. Second Peter three, right. yeah, yeah. Although that yeah. patience is not unlimited, that's that's a good. Ad, that's right. That's a good Advent theme there. So, well, and 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 we're going to talk about that later in this hymn. That's that's certainly coming. That the, the patience of God does not last forever. That the Judge is coming, and so we need we need faith in this one who has come the first time for our sins to save us in this desire that's being talked about in stanza two. We're going to keep looking at stanza two more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Zelwyn Heidi this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, December 19th. We're studying the hymn Creator of the Stars of Night with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were looking at stanza two, that God grieved over the death of his creation, but he's going to do something about it. That's the last two lines of stanza two. He has found the healing full of grace to cure and save our ruined race. And I think you were saying that we should understand that God has, has found the healing is a, poet, a poetic way of speaking of something like he appointed or sent the healing, not that he didn't know it was there and, oh, here it is kind of thing. Right. I, I think it's it's just a very poetic way of talking about uh, that God, the Father in eternity, before he created the world, elected, I mean, you can use that language, uh, chose Jesus to be the Savior. So in, in a sense, you know, God is from eternity, you know, the Son has always been. Uh, but there was a point, although again, we are talking beyond our ability to understand, um, and also before the creation of the world, when the Son was chosen by God to be the Savior. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so if we think about, again, the thou in stanza two as God the Father, then this language of has to found the healing uh, fits very well in terms of what you're talking about with the Father sending the Son. Uh, so talk about just the nature of of the healing full of grace to cure. We're, we're in that that language of healing, of medicine, how does, how does that, like, just talk a little bit about that image for God's grace, the idea of healing and curing. Yeah. The Latin hymns in particular, and especially the, the further back you go, they like to talk about sin, especially in terms of sickness, that we are, you know, infected in that sense with sin. You know, it's, it's not like it's just a cold or something like that. This is a very serious illness, obviously an illness without parallel, but this idea that then Jesus becomes the physician who comes and heals us, who takes our sins away, that sort of thing. So this, I guess you could say this is borrowing language from the gospel of Luke, you know, and, and those, and that idea, you know, especially that Jesus has come to heal. And in that way, the great physician will cure us and he will save us in the process. So. Yeah, I mean, I know that we usually tend to think of sin in terms of like a fault, like a, uh, you want to say, in terms of like a, a personal failing, which it is, of course. But like I said, hymns like this tend to see it as a disease, which is certainly language that we can use also. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this fits very well into the way we think about sin, and certainly the way the scriptures speak about sin. Whenever I think of of healing, and I mean sin and healing, I often think about the Lord's Supper as a the medicine of immortality. Sometimes it is called Jesus comes today with healing. We have that hymn in our in our hymnal in the section on the Lord's Supper. So sin is an illness. That's the way this picture is given. But God is going to send healing in His grace to cure us to save us. Let's take a look at stanza three to see how he accomplishes this. Thou camest the bridegroom of the bride, as drew the world to eventide, the spotless victim all divine proceeding from a virgin shrine. That is stanza three of our hymn. Okay, so thou camest, that you, you came, the bridegroom of the bride. What is, what's that language referring to? Well, this is Jesus, uh, very specifically. 
referring to him as the bridegroom of the church. This is language that comes especially from Revelation, uh, that he is the, the one who is the, the bridegroom of you know, the, the, the New Jerusalem, that sort of language. Uh, but the, the idea is, is that because he has come as the bridegroom, he is coming to cleanse and to uh, redeem his wife, which, of course, is the church. And that's, that's the language that we have uh, going on here. Um, I'm trying to think where else the bridegroom language comes up in the New Testament. Did you talk about Ephesians 5? That's the first place that always comes to mind. Well, that's, that's a good one, too, especially because, <laughs> you know, that, that refers to uh, not only husband and wife, but also that, you know, we see marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. You know, that's, that's a, that is a good one. Right. Yeah. I mean, so there, and that's where, you know, the language that you were talking, using earlier that, that Christ came to cleanse his wife. That's the way Paul speaks there. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The other, the other thought that comes to my mind, and particularly during the season of Advent with Christ being called the bridegroom, is uh, John the Baptist in his preaching talks about how he's the the friend of the bridegroom and and refers to Christ as bridegroom as well. That's an, that would be an, I don't know that he he uses too much of the like he doesn't necessarily talk as much about the the bride part that Christ comes for his bride the church, but he uses that same way of speaking about Christ. Yeah, I mean it's it's all over in the New Testament, but like you say, Ephesians especially and Revelation especially uh, use that language, and I think that's probably where this is drawing from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then of course you can think of many of Jesus' parables use the setting of a wedding or a wedding feast, and there's a, a bridegroom who's coming, and people are waiting for him. So it's it's all over the place in the scriptures. So so you came, Jesus, you came as the bridegroom of the bride. Now the the next line, as drew the world to even tide. What does that mean? That's a very poetic way of saying as to as the end of the ages came near, as the end of the world came near. Um. The, the idea being that Jesus came at the right time in due season uh, to redeem us, but he also came in the last time, right? We are living in the last days, and I don't mean that in a dispensational kind of way. I just mean that in this is the last age of the world. You know, there will not be another one after this because the, the next thing that God is going to do is to return, like the second coming of Christ. So we are living in the end of all things, however long that ends up actually being, right? So, right. So as drew the world to even tide, this is more than just, hey, this is an evening hymn and it's getting late and that's why we're speaking this way. Uh, but rather, this is a, a reference to God sending Jesus at just the right time. So Galatians 4, when the, the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. But also then, yeah, as you said, the, the eventide, that this is the last times. I think I think about the way that St. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and quoting from the book of Joel and saying, hey, the last times are here because Christ has come and and done his work of redemption. So, so the bridegroom has come. In these last days, why or how, the hymn continues, the spotless victim, all divine, proceeding from a virgin shrine. So 
I think we got not just Christmas in view here, but all the way to Good Friday and Easter in those two lines. Help us into to the imagery there. Yeah. So the 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 word it's it's very condensed, which yes. You know, so there's, there's a lot packed into those two lines. There's a there is a lot packed in. You know, unlike some of the previous ones where it's like, oh, this is pretty straightforward. This one's this one's got a lot. Um, spotless here. So we'll just break it down a little bit at a time. Spotless, of course, referring to uh, Christ in his perfection, right? That Christ did not sin, that he never sinned. Uh, he is the one who fulfilled the law in our place uh, because he kept the law perfectly. That would be, I think that would all be packed into spotless. I mean, what else can you think of to? Well, when I think of it, especially spotless attached to victim, I mean, my, my mind goes to the way John the Baptist preaches that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, sure. and thinking about the, the spotless sacrifice of the, of the Passover lamb. So that, that's one thing that I, I pick up from spotless, particularly attached to victim. Well, I, yeah, I, was, I, was, I guess I was kind of taking spotless on its own. But sure, sure. But yeah, certainly taking spotless attached to victim because victim in this case being the one who is given in sacrifice, uh, the one who is offered up and therefore he is a perfect sacrifice, uh, even far greater, you know, to borrow from Hebrews uh, than the animal sacrifices of old. Right. You know, he is he is not just physically flawless, which is what the the old sacrifices were. But he is also morally flawless, which makes him the the once for all sacrifice uh, for our sins, right? Hmm. Yeah. Well, and and just thinking about what we were talking about with Christ as the bridegroom of the bride and what he does for his bride, the church. Those those words from Ephesians chapter five about how Christ has cleansed the church, and now that the church, now that he has done that, the church is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So the the fact that he is the spotless victim means that he can then make his church spotless in himself as well. I, I know I'm kind of maybe just trying to connect some dots here and you're working more straight through the language, but that's, a, I think, another, you know, just connection within the stanza. Yeah, certainly. And then, okay, so we've got, go ahead. keep going, Pastor Heidi. Well, then I was saying, and, then, and then it goes on to say uh, all divine, which of course yeah. is referring to Jesus as God. Right. So this isn't just a, a human sacrifice, you know, that as if, you know, Jesus was just a really great guy or something like that. And he ended up becoming a sacrifice. No, that's, that's not what the scriptures say. He is the God man, you know, God come down to be among us, that he is fully God, fully man, God from God, whatever language you want to say. You know, this all divine refers to the divine nature of Christ. Hmm. Which in, in the context of this hymn is a, just a wonderful mystery. And of course, in the, within the Christian faith, it's a wonderful mystery. You know, we, we were talking about creator of the stars of night. Is this the father or the son, the, the thou in stanza two referring to God, father or son? And, and you know, you think we kind of landed mostly on on the father. And, and yet at the same time, we know that, that the son is does create the son also does grieve over the fallen state of creation so that he desires to do something about it such that you know that this spotless victim that's the one we've been talking about all along the the one who created the one who decided to do something about his fallen creation he now is that spotless victim the all divine one this is god himself that we that we see on the cross and again you know i know we're here in the season of advent 
almost to Christmas. And yet here we are talking about one of the, the mysteries of Good Friday, that when we look at the one on the cross, we, we can say, and we need to say, that's God who has died, which is just a, a fantastic thing to say in, in the full sense of the word fantastic. Sure. Well, and, and thinking of Christmas, um, you know, we do celebrate Christmas in its own right and all those sorts of things. So we don't want to diminish Christmas. But like many things, Christmas without Good Friday doesn't mean much. Uh, in, in the sense that if, if Jesus is not born to save, why is he born? Kind of a thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And of course, I say that in the sense of Good Friday doesn't make much sense without Christmas either. So it's, it's not that Good Friday is somehow the, the, the pinnacle of everything, but rather that these, all these things work together uh, as our, as that, you know, set forth our redemption. So we want to keep them both together is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that that second line as drew the world to eventide. And again, maybe the, the way that St. Peter preaches that in, in Acts chapter two, that all of these events together, what Christ has done, this is the last days coming here. And it, it stretches all the way from, you know, when, I mean, just think of the, the scope of the gospels. That's, that is this eventide coming together. And so, yeah, when we, when we're celebrating Christmas, we've got our, our eyes already on Good Friday and Easter as well. So let's let's keep talking about the this particular line. So we've got the spotless victim, all divine, then proceeding from a virgin shrine. What's that? Now we're talking about Christmas, right? Yeah this this is again very poetic, uh, referring to the virgin birth. Um, I think shrine here in this case is a very poetic way, and is also of referring to the womb of Mary, but it's also I think being used here for uh rhyming reasons i'm sure i mean I, there's not too much that rhymes with divine is what i'm saying <laughs> at least that makes sense there yeah, right so. you're right you know what i mean so well okay so so the spotless victim all divine the the one who is perfect unblemished who offers himself as a sacrifice he is god how did how did he get here how did he come to use the language of the first line well he came by proceeding from a virgin shrine which again, in the context of Advent and within this hymn, now we're not only saying that this spotless victim is, you know, fully God, but now we're saying he's fully man. Right, right, and that you know, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, that he he comes to save us by becoming one of us. I mean, yes, there is also a a great deal of, I think, respect would be the best way of putting it, towards the Virgin herself in this sense. You know that she was by God's grace, chosen to be the mother of our Lord. I mean, there is something to say with Elizabeth there, you know, blessed are you. But at the same time, we are focused not so much on her, but on her son, which is what the hymn focuses, right? Right. Yeah, he is the one who proceeds from the virgin shrine, the one who proceeds from the, the virgin womb, born of the virgin, to be a human being just like us in every way except without sin, so that he might be our substitute, our savior, so that the sacrifice that he makes as the spotless victim, all divine, counts for us sinners. So here is the cure. Here is the healing that was promised in stanza two. He has come, Jesus Christ, true God, true man our Savior. Let's take a look now at stanza four. At whose dread name, majestic now, all knees must bend, all hearts must bow, all things celestial thee shall own, 
and things terrestrial, Lord alone. That stands for the hymn. So the way I'm, I'm seeing this, Pastor Heidi, we've we've talked about in stanza three, Christmas, Good Friday. Now we're talking Easter and Ascension here in stanza three. Yeah. Uh, four, more, me, stanza four. More specifically, Ascension uh, and, yeah. and Christ in majesty. I just don't want to leave Easter out, you know? Right, right, right. Well, we got Easter in there too, but. That's right. Uh, because what we have here is referring to, I mean, it very clearly, oh, what is that passage? Every knee shall bow. Philippians two. Philippians two. See, you're you're just on the ball with the passages today. I like that. So I'm just glad to help. I can't think for some reason. Um, <laughs> but I mean Philippians two and the language of that, you know, he has been set above all things, that he is he has the name above every name, and that at his name every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The the idea is that this Christ uh, who has been sacrificed, who has also risen, although we didn't really get any indication of the resurrection here, which is fine. We don't have to. But this risen Christ who has ascended now sits in glory. And as a result, uh, he has the name lifted up above every name, uh, the name of Jesus, which was given to him. I guess you could say it still has kind of a Christmas theme because it was given to him uh, from the by the angel Gabriel while he was still in the womb, right? But this name, Jesus, is the majestic name, the one to whom all will pay homage, whether willingly or unwillingly. Hmm. Yeah. So okay, at but the way the hymn speaks of it, it's it's at whose dread name, majestic. What what makes the name Jesus a dread name? Well, I mean, we okay, we use dreadful almost exclusively in a negative sense. Right, this idea that oh, that's just dreadful, you know, when we hear about something or it's a dread thing. But dread can also have a positive sense, in the sense that it is fearful, in the sense that it is awe-inspiring. You know, it is a name which uh, should be held in great reverence. I think would be a good way of putting it. It's kind of like the the words terrible or awful. Right. which we also use in negative senses today almost exclusively, but they can have a sense in which, you know, awful and, you know, that it it creates awe or terrible in the sense that it is terrifying. Um, so, I mean, all of these words, I think, even though we use them negatively, can be used in a positive sense, like dread is being used here. Hmm. Sure, sure. and But at the same time, I don't think this hymn entirely escapes the negative sense of the word dread, that there is a, a sense in, okay, this this one who came as spotless victim now now is exalted over all things as the ruler of all things, even, I mean, all things celestial and terrestrial. So things in heaven and things on earth, he rules over it all. There is a sense of of dread in the the more negative sense that I I don't think we want to entirely lose, right? But it's not only negative, right? Which I think right. is the way that most of the time we use the word today. Sure, sure. So we're talking maybe in the the sense of the the explanation to the commandments that we should fear God. This is the the sense that of the dread here that it's it's not just a terrified thing or a you know a a negative sense, but there is the, the awe, the respect, the he is God, I'm not kind of sense. That's how the word dread is being used here 
in this fourth stanza. Yeah. Anything more there, Pastor Heidi? Well, I was just going to say, I think I think you're referencing the catechism is actually a good way of looking at it there because fear, we should fear and love God. Fear there is in both senses, right? You know, I fear him not only in the respect that I give to him as my father, but also I fear him because he is powerful. He is the Lord and I am not. So, I mean, yeah, dread in this sense kind of carries both both things in the same way. He is dreadful in that he is awe-inspiring, but he's also dreadful, especially if I don't believe in him, which is why the, the next stanza is going to be talking about his coming, especially in judgment. Right. So let's look at stanza five. Here we get that that theme of Advent that points us to the final coming of Christ. O thou whose coming is with dread to judge the living and the dead, preserve us from the ancient foe while still we dwell on earth below. That's stanza five of the hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night. So here we have again the word dread that shows up. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. Keep keep on that same thought and, and move us into this stanza, Pastor Heidi. Well, I mean, if we've talked about the ascension of Christ, it only makes sense to talk about the second coming. And yes, that is a common theme of Advent. You know, we do often talk about the second Advent. But especially in the context of this hymn, you know, we've seen basically the whole of salvation history, right? Starting from the creation to the incarnation to Easter to ascension. And now we are looking at the end of all things, that Christ will come again in dread majesty as judge to judge the living and the dead. So in that sense, now we're just taking it to its most natural conclusion, which is to look at the second coming. Hmm. So his coming is with dread. He's going to judge on that day. What then is the the prayer that's offered by this stanza in view of, of Christ coming with dread and judgment? What is the prayer that we offer? Well, that he would preserve us from Satan, that he would keep us from the power of the devil, to keep us his own in that sense, to keep us in the faith. I, I mean, this this is very reminiscent of hymns like, oh, like, I mean, the, the end times hymns and trying a blank on some of them. But like the, the, the DS E-Ray, which uh, the day of woe, day of, of wrath, that sort of thing, that Christ as the coming judge will, we also ask that he would save us in that day so that we would be preserved uh, from destruction. That's all of that is in view here that, you know, while we are waiting for the fulfillment of Christ. Christ's word in you know the, the the end of salvation history, we do need his strength so that we would remain in the faith and be preserved from the ancient foe. This is also a language especially derived from Peter again, like first Peter chapter five. Uh, the the your the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to right. devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Uh, we would not be able to resist him without the power of Christ. Right. So we pray for that, just like we, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think both of those petitions fit very well with this stanza that, that God would protect us from the devil's temptations now until he comes again in glory and delivers us from all evil on that day for which we look forward with great anticipation. We've got about three minutes here, Pastor Heidi, so let's take a look now at the final stanza. To God the Father and the Son, 
and Holy Spirit three in one. Praise, honor, might, and glory be from age to age eternally. Amen. That is stanza six of the hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night. So, Pastor Heidi, in the Lutheran service book, there's a triangle prior to the stanza, meaning we're singing a doxology to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Many congregations stand for such stanzas. And, you know, sometimes it's like, well, that's a doxology. We know what's there. We can just kind of move on. Well, take us into this one, at least, you know, with the three minutes we've got. Help us see some of the details of this doxology particularly. Well, I think I think just to connect it very quickly to the rest of the hymn, it, it makes perfect sense to end in a doxology, if only because, you know, we've talked about almost everything that God has done very briefly and very poetically, you know, from creation all the way to the second coming. And so it is worthwhile then, it is meet, meet right and salutary right. that we give him this glory, honor, and praise because we've talked about what he's done and what he will do for us. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that we will be singing doxologies for to him for in heaven, right? Everything that he has done. So it's only fitting that we begin that doxology now. Um, as far as the specifics of, of this stanza, of course, we have a clear reference to the Trinity, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Um, I don't know how much you want to say about that. I, I was more, I mean, I was more interested in finding out about the praise, honor, might, and glory be. Okay. Yeah, I kind of figured. I mean, the first the first half of the stanza is pretty straightforward. So, uh, But the, the praise, you know, we give him praise in the sense that we are giving him thanks and, and praise for what he has done. I know this is a, a us to him kind of a thing. You know, we're praising him for all of his wonderful deeds. I think that's what uh, praise has in mind, uh, honor would it be in the sense that God has done the honorable thing. He has done the thing worthy of honor in becoming our savior and becoming the one who has redeemed us. Uh, we can talk about that some more if you would like, um, might in the sense, well, how do you want to say might might in the sense that he is the mighty one, that he is the one who can do all things. So I would say might referring to his power. So if honor refers to what he has done, might refers to his power, what he can do and has done. And of course, glory kind of ties them all together because, you know, the Lord is the glorious one. He is the, the one who has done uh, all, the, all of these things that he, that he is worthy of glory and, you know, that his name is glorious. I mean, we could we could sit here and talk for quite a while about what glory means, especially in the Old Testament. I don't think we have that much time. No, we we don't. We don't. But but you know what, Pastor Heidi, we will be giving praise, honor, might, and glory to the Triune God, as it says in the hymn, from age to age, eternally, forever and ever. And so, right. though though our time today runs out to discuss theology and this hymn, we have the opportunity to to join in the praises of Christ now and forever. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken, helping us today to look at the hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night, number 351 in Lutheran Service Book. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.